Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. In this fifth season, I'll be exploring how we can change the ways in which we relate to and structure our existing systems so that we can build towards a more resilient future. From alternative economic models and business practices to our role in and perception of the more than human world, this season will explore how we might design ways of living that both enrich and sustain all forms of life, not just our own. For more information, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jill Coombs, an author, coach and facilitator who works with groups and individuals to help them find their unique way of contributing something positive to the world, whether through their work, activism or life choices. With an approach rooted in her own journey towards fulfilling work, she has supported hundreds of people to charter a path that's both good for the soul and good for the world, and she's written three books exploring these rich and fascinating themes. The first, Hearing Our Calling, is about finding the right work, which was published in 2014. The second is called The Game, which explores the role we play in the health of the world, published in 2016. And her latest work, The Trembling Warrior, A Guide for Reluctant Activists, was published in 2019. Now, having left her career in corporate learning and development in 2011, Jill travelled around the country on foot and public transport, leading workshops for communities on living in harmony with self, people and planet, before spending a year studying holistic science at Schumacher College in Devon. She has a background in integrative therapeutic counselling and coaching in organisations, and Jill has also been a trustee at Hawkwood College and now works with the Embercombe team and collaborates with Manda Scott on her podcast, Accidental Gods. If you're interested in how you might bring your values to your work and to your life more generally, then this conversation is a really good one for you. Gillian, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. From your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Oh, right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we've come collectively to a crisis point. So individual cultures over the centuries have kind of risen up and peaked and declined and disappeared. But I think globally, we're all affected by what's happening now, whether we're deeply implicated, you know, living in wealthy nations or more just affected, you know, living in the global south. So I think we've come to a point where we're invited to mature as a species. Mm. So our our particularly human consciousness, and I don't mean superior, just different and uniquely human, this consciousness that's emerged over the millennia, well, I think it's, it's run ahead of us and we've sort of been blindly taking some seriously dangerous turnings. And it feels like the human psyche is becoming somewhat polarised. I'm hoping to talk about that uh, today. Mm. And it feels to me like integration is the crucial work ahead of us if we're to move forward in a way that's healthy and sane for the whole living, complex, fragile beautiful, interconnected world that we're so privileged to inhabit. I agree with you wholeheartedly with with the sense that this is actually a, it's a kind of an inflection point where 
In some ways, to me, it feels like an initiation, a rite of passage that we really have to stand up for and take a moment to reflect upon in terms of how we want to approach it, how we want to move forward. But back to this idea of polarity, what do you what do you witness in that space? Well, I'm seeing a splitting. I'll, I'll kind of hope to go much more deeply into this, but I'm seeing a splitting between the rational mind and the soul, a kind of egocentric, commerce-centric way of living and a, a more emerging, spontaneous soul-centric, eco-centric way of living. I'm seeing a divide between almost like the, the blind rush to destruction and people who are getting sucked into that or the parts of us that are getting sucked into that and pulled along with it and another impulse that's much more generative, much more healthy uh, that wants to that wants to survive this crisis and kind of grow up as a species. Mm. I've been recently reading um, a phenomenal book which I mentioned on the podcast with Manda and Della, which is Women Who Run With the Wolves. Oh yes, love it. It's a it's a very complex book, kind of maps on Jungian ideas of the psyche onto fairy tales and connects and weaves them together. And one of the things that I found fascinating was exactly this idea of parts of ourselves that that we can see aspects of our psyche, aspects of, of humanity reflected in these old stories. And I think mm -hmm. when we look at the global situation now, rather than use othering language and say, okay, well, these people over here, they're doing X, or these people over here are doing Y, the acknowledgement that we're kind of playing out on a global scale, different fractious parts of ourselves, which maybe need, as you mentioned earlier, need integration and somehow a different dialogue with one another, one that's less destructive. Mm. I think that can be a really rich and interesting frame for sort of addressing some of the issues. What are, what are your what are your thoughts? <laughs> I think so too. I think it's crucial. I think it's vital, that kind of integration of, it's almost like reclaiming the shadow. Yeah. So I think... Uh, partly, yes, it's parts of all of us. And I think some of us do tend more to get sucked towards the the individual or the, the acquisitive, if you like, the material. And some of us are sucked more, more towards the generative and creative. And that's not to lay blame anywhere. It's just as, you know, I kind of notice that that's what's happening. But, you know, the fault line does run through all of us. And there's something about withdrawing projections and reclaiming the shadow. So, the, you know, the parts of us that might be destructive or or selfish or acquisitive or, you know, all those things that we don't like to necessarily name about ourselves. Mm. And also encouraging uh, a reclamation of soul and and love and peace and beauty and uh, all the qualities that have somehow got marginalised and, and lost somewhere along the line as well mm. in, in some ways and in some contexts. And so with your, with your third book, you delve into some of these themes. It's called The Trembling Warrior, A Guide for Reluctant Activists. I love the title. And it explores how we might begin to respond to the crises facing people and planet and all the other beautiful creatures we, we live alongside. And I'm curious, what, what led you to write the book and what is a reluctant activist? <laughs> I guess people are reluctant activists for many reasons. Uh, I was writing it, I guess, as all authors do, coming from my own perspective and mm. my own story. And for me, there's something about being naturally quite a gentle soul, mm. quite shy sometimes, uh, sensitive, not a thick skin, more, a th more of a thin skin, but nevertheless feeling passionately that there are bad things happening in the world and that I want to stand up and have a voice and just be part of shaping a better future and of course that comes with you know it's uh it comes with its dilemmas do I stand up and do I expose myself do I put myself out there or or do I kind of hold back in a safe space and for me mm. that there's always a tension there you know I'm more of a hermit in the woods but <laughs> I feel I can't live in that way especially at these times where there's you know there are things to be done and things that need doing and I think there are a lot who feel like me you know who don't want to kind of be in the 
necessarily the full-on activism which involves dangling from cranes and kind of you know going right up to the sharp end but nevertheless want to make a difference mm. so uh, so I wrote the book really for for people who um, feel in a, you know in a similar way that they want to do something but they don't know if they can quite identify as an activist so mm. helping people really to find their own way of, of stepping up and and contributing to supporting life and sanity and well-being mm. and it's interesting actually just as I'm thinking and listening on on what you're saying even the word activist it's quite external it's this idea of action <laughs> of putting out into the world um, and one of the things that I think is really interesting and maybe more lacking, well, in the last 12 months, maybe it's been forced upon us, but the, these spaces for contemplation, these spaces for slowing down, for creating mm. an inward look, an inward sight that I think we kind of, when, when we're in this mode of constant consumption, constant creation, constant productivity, everything is about what we can put out there, what we can produce. Um, and so the inner space becomes overlooked somehow yeah. and i wonder with with this idea of you know people who are who maybe don't perceive themselves as natural warriors so these outward more physically active or vocal people that maybe they're a quieter people who are the poets the artists and you, you mentioned sort of dreamers and gentle sages in your book that these people also have a very vital role and voice to express to bring to the conversation who don't want to battle but maybe they can envision a different path forward what are we what are your thoughts about their roles in terms of creating change oh exactly that um who don't want to battle but nevertheless can be part of a really strong force for something positive mm. so um my intentions to not put people too much into boxes but to really recognize that there are these these themes and patterns these particular qualities so as we've said you know kind of introversion the quality of deep reflection or uh, sensitivity which means kind of an empathy but also a tenderness necessarily and an open mind so a readiness to be with paradox and uncertainty rather than a, a, a desire to come to closure you know to hold those difficult questions I mean these are all traits that are kind of found in various personality type models but scientifically you could say that um, they're qualities that reside in the apparently in the right hemisphere of the brain. Uh, do you know Ian McGilchrist's work, uh, The Master and the Emissary? Well, he writes beautifully about the master being the right hemisphere of the brain, where the deep, visionary, open, empathetic, compassionate, values-based stuff is is kind of based, and the left brain being more about fixing, labeling, detachment, objectivity, which are also, of course, really important qualities. But he writes about how it's kind of got out of balance so that, as you said, it's like the the sage and the dreamer and the visionary are doing working in the realms of the unseen and the unmeasurable. And uh, that's almost been the way he describes it, is it's sacrificed on the altar of the ability to measure, mm. quantify, which has led to a kind of, you know, very detached sort of dominant worldview. And um, in my first book, Hearing Our Calling, I wrote about how a mix of different personality traits are sort of born into community and are sort of necessary for healthy functioning. So, you know, like in any self-regulating system, whether it's a, a cell in our bodies or an ecosystem or a community, you know, it's like all the right ingredients come very naturally in the right balance. And uh, I think that probably my kind of speculation is that that would have happened and perhaps still does in indigenous nature-based communities that the right balance is simply born in, you know, what's needed comes into the community at the time. Mm. And uh, I think that's really important for people who 
are very kind of, you know, those aspects that have been so marginalised, more reflective, visionary, the dreamers, um, who might often feel like outsiders in the kind of traditional organisational structures. But, you know, these people I feel, you know, these voices, these deep, reflective, soulful voices are more necessary than ever, perhaps, at the moment. And I do see that they're beginning to emerge again, which, uh, which gives me great hope. Mm. This this idea of sacrificing one for the other, I think any of us who have, and I think most of us have aspects of this, a creative urge, whatever that looks like, however that manifests for each of us, that often that, that aspect kind of gets put to the back of the room or, or kind of sacrificed in order for us to perform or to be able to, I don't know, um, express our intellect or acquire skills or be productive or to get a bigger promotion. And I think certainly within my own life, I definitely prioritise the intellectual at the expense of the artistic. And it's not that these things have to be distinct structures or impulses that don't talk to one another. I think that's the that's the crucial mm-hmm. thing is that these things can enter into a dance. There doesn't need to be a schism between them. Maybe we can talk a little bit about hearing our calling. How do you begin to address this idea of what a rich and purposeful work life can look like? Do you see a way in which we can weave these different elements together to kind of create something more fulfilling? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Oh, gosh, how to answer that. (laughs) What comes to mind immediately is um, Mary Oliver's lovely poem, um, Mm. who's, I don't know whether you've come across it, some people may have heard this thing about letting the soft animal of your body love what it loves. That's Mm. all you need to do. So it's coming back to a fundamental sense of what's underneath all the conditioning that we, that may have kind of overlaid our very kind of innate and young tendencies. So, you know, when we're very small, we kind of know what we care about and, and what we want to be and what we want to do, or a lot of us do. Uh, you know, we kind of come in with that seed, as James Ellman describes it. And yet it can get lost, you know, through cultural conditioning or in our families or just, you know, kind of the society we grow up in. We can lose sight of that kind of germ that's at the core, at the mm. heart of what we're here to do. And so there are there are many practices for visualizing, you know, what our dream work would be, um, what our soul work would be if we were free to do it. And there are so many kind of constraints, you know, financial constraints, uh, societal constraints that can that can kind of stop us from seeing or being aware mm. of what our our truest purpose is. But it's questions like, what do I care most deeply about? What kind of work really gives or brings me joy? And, you know, there are lots of other questions um, that I explore with people, but those are two of the fundamental ones. So wherever your passion is, whether it's a joy or an anger or an excitement or a uh, whatever's kind of fueling that, wherever the passion is, the thing you care most deeply about in the world or the theme you care most deeply about, and that combined with the things that you're naturally most good at, that you might innately do and not even recognize it as a, as a particular personal skill. Uh, you might even, you know, when I ask people about this or reflect back to them about their particular skill, they often look surprised and say, well, that's, that's just what I do. And of course, <laughs> that's the point. You know, it's just what people most naturally and spontaneously do in response to what they see uh, around them. Mm. So do you feel that some part of that rediscovering of that seed of the thing that we feel most moved to do or ways in which to be in the world, it sounds to me as though that actually can be enhanced by talking about it with someone else, by being in a relationship with someone else, whether that's a a friend, a coach, a therapist, um, a teacher. Are there there ways in which we can show up like that for other people um, to help them 
get a greater sense of what it is that maybe they feel moved to do. Yeah, and I think we can we can do it all the time. We can either do it in a professional capacity or when we're in relationship with one another, whenever we say, oh, you're so great at doing so-and-so, or you know, when your community or your people always come to you for a certain thing, chances are you know, that's, uh, that's the thing that they've recognized in you that you have a particular skill or gift in, and it might be more than one skill or gift. The importance of gratitude and recognizing out loud people's skills and qualities, kind of affirming their position or their place in community when we see it is really important too. Mm. It's it's a funny one because one of the things that springs to mind is, I don't know if you've had this happen to you, I, I imagine you may have done. When someone comes up to you and they go, oh, Jill, you know, I really like it how you do X, Y or Z or whatever. And it, it's a quality that maybe is very natural to you that you're very skilled in, but maybe you don't want to do it for a living. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so for instance, I, I have people come up and they say, oh, you know, maybe you should coach people or mentor. And I, I, um, I mean, occasionally I do this, but I do it because I want to, not because I want to have it as a profession. Uh-huh. But there are other certain things where you think, okay, if you have certain qualities that you're perhaps you have a natural ability in let's say and that you're skilled in it's also the second question of well what is it that you can put those qualities to put those skills to that will also enrich you as well as the person that you're you know benefiting or working with so bill plotkin from the animus institute in the states he writes beautifully about the survival dance and the sacred dance so the survival dance being what we do to earn our living and the sacred dance being the soul work uh, that mm. we almost feel compelled to do because uh, to not do it would be to deny ourselves of you know our one precious life and so for each person, there's a, a complex dance and it's not just an individual question of will I do this for a living or will I just do it as naturally as part of who I am in the world. It depends on external factors such as will people pay me to do this? Does mm. society recognize it as a skill? Those kinds of questions. So so for each person, yeah, it's balancing both. Uh, for some people, they might find that the paid work they do is the work they want to do until they drop. And for others, <laughs> they might find that they do have a paid work that they're quite happy in, but um, it gives them a living and a roof over their heads in order that they can find other outlets and other right contexts for the work that they really love to do. So it's mm. a very individual thing. And I love that you're giving that spectrum of the ways in which we can engage with the things that we love and the things that we need to be able to survive. Because I think there does seem to be this theme that comes up again and again in these sorts of workshops and conversations that are focused on reconnecting with our sense of purpose and finding meaningful work, which is this assumption that there must be a way for us to make a living from that which we love doing the most. And I think it can be, while it can be a really useful questions say okay can I make a living doing that which I love the most what would that look like and it's wonderful to envision that I think sometimes it can get in the way of people finding some path forward because it's not it's not going to be possible for all of us to make a living out of the thing that we love the most and I think sometimes if I'm thinking of things like painting or music the very joy of it comes from it being separate from money from it being its own pursuit do you think that we need to have maybe a slightly broader more inclusive more nuanced conversation about balancing purpose and and where that can't be the thing that we derive an income from nevertheless making sacred space for it oh absolutely yeah i think to make sacred space for it for me feels like the primary thing that we allow through whatever it is that feels like our, our biggest joy and it's still work you know when we're contributing something um 
in a in a seen or unseen way, when we're doing our soul work, we're contributing something to the world. Around that, we have to find ways to live, whether that's actually making money through doing it uh, or whether it's about doing something completely different for our work. For example, I know this <laughs> wonderful visionary who's... Uh, in isolation, really, and without any other input, been constructing a, a view of how society could look in the future. And he's come up with something very similar to Charles Eisenstein's work, you know, sacred economy work and uh, the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible. But he's done it pretty much in isolation and he works as a plumber. Wow. Um, so that's just one example of how the two can coexist. <laughs> and so... With the pandemic having ripped through most of our lives in various ways and with so many of us now grappling with these deeper questions, how we live and who we wish to become, whether as individuals and as a global community, I'm curious to ask what prompted you to leave your career in corporate learning and development to kind of walk down this, what we might consider quite a different path? <laughs> well, I guess I've always walked slightly different paths. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe there is something else as well about the quality of the maverick, you know, the unconventional yeah. that really needs to be celebrated and seen as, as well, you know, when people think, oh, I can't do that because what will people say? Or it's yeah. not really the it's not really the well-trodden path. You know, there is something about uh, the other paths, I think, which is, which is crucial for soul development and finding the path that's right for you, even if you're the first one to tread it in some cases. Mm. But in my own case, well, so I had, so I'm trying to give you the not too lengthy version, <laughs> had about sort of 10 years of working at jobs which were not satisfying for me personally, which didn't draw on my best skills. So often I wasn't very good at them, didn't really enjoy them very much and uh, didn't particularly enjoy the context either. Mm. So I had to go at steel fixing. Wow. I was a van driver. I worked in a toiletries factory. You know, I tried all sorts of things, having worked with horses and decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. Mm. And then in my early 30s, I trained as a therapeutic counsellor. And there was something that just shifted into place where, oh, yeah, it's this. It's something about this. It's something about mm. working with people in a transformative way that just hadn't occurred to me before. And, and at the same time that I qualified, I'd also been getting, getting involved in learning and development for the company I worked for at the time, which was Nestle, which was a division of Nestle, the food mm -hmm. manufacturers. And uh, having really no idea, being very politically naive and socially naive at that time, I got quite excited about learning and development and the role and didn't think about the broader impact of the organization I was working for at all. Mm. And so I worked at Nestle for three years and learned a lot in terms of learning and development, you know, crafted and practiced my skill and then moved to Cheltenham and Gloucester, uh, the building society that's now part of Lloyd's TSB. Grew my skills and experience more there and thoroughly enjoyed it. But there was another part of me that was, it felt like a separate part that cared mm. about the wild world, that cared about particularly farm animal welfare, that cared about climate change. But I saw these as you know, we were talking earlier about what's worth and what isn't. I saw these as not work, you know, a separate part of my life mm. and my work as something quite different. But uh, I think it was probably around the time or just before the time when I discovered Schumacher College in Devon mm. and went on some short courses there and started to ask myself, well, why aren't I doing what I enjoy doing and I'm quite good at in service of what I love? Why am I doing it for industries which are actually, you know, have a kind of net destructive uh, effect on, you know, human soul and community as well as the living world. So I started to explore ways in which I could integrate the two. 
And I went to study at Schumacher College and actually realized that, you know, my work and you know, my love of the living world, but both just aspects of the same thing, you know, what, what I'm here in the world to do. So I left my corporate career, just it was a bit of a, one of those random things like, yeah, this is absolutely the right thing to do, and travelled around the UK running workshops on living in harmony with self and other human beings and the rest of the living world. Um, mm. So travelled around for several weeks sort of on foot and public transport and borrow bikes and things. And Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so an amazing time. And I found myself talking with people one-to-one about their projects and their dreams and their plans. And I was using the coaching skills that I'd learned and drawing on, you know, as I always had done, the therapeutic counselling skills mm. that I'd learned a long time ago. And um, so from there, I just developed a private practice. And was, I was very fortunate because the group of housing associations I was working for at the time uh, asked me back in to do consultancy work for some years. So I was gradually able to wind down, if you like, that side of my life life as I built up the other side and that that really helped enormously it wasn't quite like taking the big leap that a lot of people do very courageously take (laughs) and I think maybe that's also one of the things that puts a lot of people off it's like well how do I make this massive change in life and often we look to others and we see you know the before and the after but we don't see the transition we don't see the the awkward stumbling or the building of the bridge over time or the building up of some sort of resource or whatever it might be or or support system Mm -hmm. what might you suggest in terms of questions people can ask themselves to help them navigate some of that transition if if people are listening to this thinking oh actually I can really relate to Jill's story there how do I start to explore these sorts of questions for myself and maybe build a different path Mm. so several things one would be to study with people who are on a similar path study with them listen to podcasts uh, read books get involved in groups so that you're beginning to so it's like Sheldrake talks about the morphic fields you're beginning to move into the energetic kind of knowledge, impulse kind of field of whatever the uh, uh, the trade or the craft or the skill is that you really want to begin to develop. So working with others, collaborating, learning with others is really important. And then there's the question of what needs to be let go of. And sometimes it's a gradual letting go. And other times people find that they're called to just a very dramatic jumping from one thing to another. And that involves almost like a kind of psycho-spiritual death. So it's a big thing to say, I'm, I'm choosing to walk away from this and we need to feel it fully. So there's something about rolling the question around and sensing more and more into envisioning what uh, your work will be who you'll work with, where you'll do it. And then it's almost, I've found in working with people over the years that some of it is done by decision, but a lot of it is almost done by noticing. It's like, oh, I'm noticing. It feels almost like there's a new Mm. pair of leaves wanting to be made here (laughs) in me or um, some seeds or something that wants to drop away. And then being able to, and again, kind of uh, maybe coming alongside somebody so that might be a coach or a therapist, or it might be something like uh, the Learning Center Embercombe in Devon or the Animus Institute in the States, where there's real close attention paid to what is my soul trying to do right now? What's trying? To, what's calling me? What's trying to manifest itself? What am I ready to let go of? What am I not ready to let go of? And the more closely we can pay attention to those questions, um, the more we're able to nurture and nourish those transitions and transformations rather than them happening kind of or trying to happen out of our awareness. That's so useful. Do you know how, thank you. Do you know how many conversations I've been trying to orient in that direction? People say, well, I don't have any questions, but maybe you should come up with them. And and it's one of these frustrating things that um, 
it can be really tricky knowing where might be a good starting point from which to tackle these deeper questions. So I think those those resources, those insights, those questions that you've just shared are really valuable. I wonder, do you actually have a process that you use to take people through that shifting, that restoring, I guess, of their lives, of what they want to do, who they want to become, envisioning what it might look like, making it tangible? Well, yes and no. Um, several <laughs> processes. Um, it's because everybody's so different and everybody's soul journey is so unique. Uh, what I've had to learn to do over the years is to fit my process or my approach, if you like, to their soul process. So people work at very different paces. Some people, and I suppose only experience has been able to teach me this really. It's like some people are in a place where they need to ponder things for much longer or need a lot longer Mm. to let go of a previous stage. Some people like to work with deep visioning, almost shamanic journeying, you know, kind of process of dreaming, doing dream work. And others tend to come from a much more pragmatic approach and and like to uh, lay out things further into the future. But I tend to work with people in a more, unlike a traditional coach, I suppose, you know, I'm trained, trained as a coach as well, but unlike a traditional coach, rather than trying to fit the person's soul process to a timetable or a set of fixed goals, rather I try to balance the two so to provide a structure and a container, but to allow that process to unfold in the way that it wants to at the pace that it wants to. Mm. So it really is a bit like a plant. You know, you would work very differently with um, a lemon tree growing than you would with a, oh, I don't know, a <laughs> runner bean or something, because <laughs> they, they do very different things and then over different time scales. That's such a lovely way to think about it. And also, I think it, it takes us away from this idea of kind of having to squeeze ourselves into a process that we think we ought to be taking, especially when you read so many self-help books and there's so much stuff out there saying, you know, the 10 steps to this, the 12 steps to that. And it becomes kind of quite devoid of, of personal resonance because you just think, well, this is going to apply to everyone. I'm just going to follow this recipe and end up with the same thing. And of course, that's not where some of the richness is. A lot of it is about being in dialogue, adapting the process and making sure that at each point, I think you're feeling as if you're you're expanding or deepening in some way. And it sounds like your process really encourages that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, something about working. So the again, it's left brain and right brain, isn't it? So it's rather having and tailoring a structure because mm-hmm. we do need structure and naming things and defining things. We do need that. But rather in service of the soul journey, rather than it being the defining, you know, the structure having dominance. So it's the right brain stuff is what's, that's the sacred thing, if you like. <laughs> I don't want to be too, I don't want to lose the sacredness of the left <laughs> hemisphere because that's there too. But it's the, the sole purpose that's trying to come through and the structure and the process is in service of that. Mm. Um, Otherwise, it becomes a bit, you know, we've seen it in so many organisations where process and targets uh, become the tail that wags Mm. the dog. It also connects in with the differences that we each hold, the the capacity for change in one person will show up very differently in the way that they they engage with it, in the way that they move forward, whatever it might be, than in someone else. And one of the things that can be difficult is assuming that there is one way to be active in the world. So the focus on fast-moving, active, external signifiers of change as opposed to some of the more internal, less visible qualities. And one of the things that I'd love to ask you about is your thoughts around people who are quieter with thinner skins, as you mentioned earlier, people who maybe experience more introversion Mm -hmm. um, and their archetypal presence in the world. Do you want to speak a little to that? 
So what I describe as trembling warriors, you know, the archetypally, the sage or the dreamer or the visionary and the healer and so on, as we've said, they're working largely in the realms of the unseen, the unmeasurable. And of course, the impact of that is that where, you know, a lot of these people are working uh, freelance often doing creative stuff, but a lot of people, you know, aren't, aren't able, as we've said, to do that and are working in organizations and have some fantastic insights uh, awareness, ideas to bring to the piece, but they very often get lost out, left out. I remember working with a client in an organization once who she came to me and wanted to do some coaching work because she couldn't have her voice heard in meetings. She struggled to get her voice in. So we did some stuff, you know, traditional stuff around body language and some voice coaching, but it wasn't authentic for her. She could almost sort of put on this front to get her voice into meetings, but she found that what was happening was that people would appear to listen and then just move the conversation Mm. on anyway, or people would... um, later she'd often hear you know her idea come round again but with no recognition that it had come from her which she kind of got used to (laughs) so she did it she did eventually resign from that role and she went back as a consultant where she could do some you know she could use her skills and qualities but she didn't get to contribute at a senior level and so what was lost you know rather than asking a question or putting a question into the group conversations would happen very quickly as they tend to do and um, where there's high energy and people are time pressured. And so somebody might ask her a question, but she would freeze and think, well, I need time, you know, to kind of roll this question over and Mm. to sit with it for a while and to dive into my deepest wisdom around this. But of course, that time just wasn't there. So her contribution, which could have been really powerful and really beautiful, didn't get made at a senior level. And I think that's why, you know, we're, we're kind of, in the state that we're in, you know, I don't think it's underestimating. Obviously, there are other factors, but I think the loss of those soulful voices, that deeper wisdom, has been immense. You know, at a community level, in organisations, and uh, at a global level, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of the situations we're seeing at the moment. You know, with the capital being stormed and with the climate crisis and breakdown of community and so on. I think largely uh, the the loss or the lack of that soulful voice is. Uh, is partly responsible or is is in, implicit in that in some way. Uh, and so there are ways, you know, I kind of dream of ways in which those quieter voices can be heard. And as part of my work is encouraging people to find ways to have their voices heard. But it's partly for the individual to be able to do that, but also at a societal level. And I think we're seeing this, we're seeing a shift towards more inclusion. But um, can I say a little bit about uh, Extinction Rebellion as one of the organisations that I know a little bit more about at the moment? Please, yes, feel welcome. Mm. So that's kind of engaging with these questions at the moment, you know, how do we hear all voices? voices. And the main focus tends to be on, and rightly so, tends to be on marginalized voices we all know about, like people of color, um, women. Uh, there's also an issue around working class or people living in poverty and how have their voices heard. And yet somehow what is still missed in this is the piece of these quiet, soulful voices So in Extinction Rebellion and other organizations, there are brilliant new methods coming in like citizens' assemblies uh, to ensure that every voice Mm. is heard. But they're still still fast-paced and there's still a potential unconscious bias from whoever's doing the scribing or whoever's uh, facilitating the meeting that is more, as you've said, kind of tuned in or more trusting of the faster, more definite voice. 
um, when people speak, and we know this, you know, when people speak quickly and they speak loudly and they speak in a definite way, they are more mm. likely to be believed and trusted. Uh, and so it feels to me that uh, there's still a lot of work to be done around that, um, primarily partly in developing processes where people's voices can be heard, where people can sit with a question, an important question for some time and intuitively dive into it and see what they come up mm. with. And it's not easy, you know, where people have got a lot of energy and they're passionate about stuff and they're used to extroverting, you know, it's not easy to really slow things down and to really listen and allow time and space for that process and trust in mm. it as well. Yeah, I've really recognised what you're saying. I've also seen this um, I've seen this elsewhere. One of, one of my good friends, Sarah Corbett, who is a wonderful, amazing activist, she created this thing called the Craftivist Collective. This is several years ago now, and they're doing uh-huh. really well. And it's precisely to create a space in which people are included into conversation, but it's much more contemplative. So it's by focusing on a shared activity of craft work that you can have this silence, you can work on specific campaigns or changes that you want to see happen in a way that's that's quite meditative, but it has some sort of outcome that you can look to, you know, whether it's a beautifully knitted sign that you're going to hang up somewhere to give people pause for thought or whatever it might be. And I think there are there are spaces in which this is starting to come into conversation. Mm. But you're right. I mean, it just seems like there is... We've been on this treadmill of increasingly fast-paced communication for so long that it feels as though our capacity for or not even capacity it's kind of finding the time to to, to splinter off some time so that we can have a bit more space to dive deeply with ourselves and with one another that's been so difficult to create for ourselves because there's this expectation in society and especially fueled by social media that we be constantly on constantly in communication and of course that means we lose all of this this possibility for depth, which comes with slowing things down. Yeah. What do you think is some of the impact of this loss, of this loss of spaces and time to have this depth of communication? Well, I suppose at an individual level, like the the plumber that I mentioned, uh, who's incredibly frustrated because he couldn't get his ideas across. So, you know, he's doing all this rich visioning and ideering and it's kind of going to mm. waste and um, as, I've, as I've said, organizations miss out, you know, you can imagine a moment in a meeting where someone raises some point of strategy and uh, the deep thinker in the room takes too long to respond. You know, nobody knows that there's a deep thinking process going on, but they rather think, oh, no, they haven't got anything to say, move on quickly. And so decisions get made that could be bad, you know, financially for a company, but also decisions that pay more attention to the ethics or the culture or the interrelationality with the living world, um, decisions there, which would be informed by that more, you know, that deeper, more soulful wisdom. They've been missing, you know, I think that they've been largely missing. I do see that changing and I see, you know, craftivism is a lovely example. And I think there are loads of other lovely flourishing things happen happening. I think there definitely is a move more towards the more gentle and soulful energy being listened to and respected. But, you know, as I said earlier, I think this is where I see almost like a bifurcation happening. So there's that flourishing happening on the one side, but there almost seems to be on the other side and again, uh, I don't want to categorize too much here, but it does feel as though there's also there's a hardening and a, an, an increased um, aggression. Uh, and it feels like those two energies at the moment are polarizing and perhaps necessarily doing that before 
they integrate. That's an interesting idea, the idea of it polarising necessarily. And, and you may well be right. I, I, I grapple with this quite a bit, the idea of, you know, why is there so much suffering? Why are we having to, to split into these opposing forces? Why are we seeing so much tribal friction between, especially within political tribes, I'm thinking, um, with the US and in Europe and in the UK and elsewhere, that there does seem to be this kind of this splitting. And there are people in the middle, there seems to be this kind of Quite a large, mm. I would probably guess, a large group of people in the centre going, hang on, I didn't get the memo. <laughs> What's happening here? <laughs> yeah. Why aren't we having more conversations in the middle, in the territory that most of us occupy? Um, and I wonder, yeah. maybe, I mean, maybe that is absolutely necessary. Maybe that's part of what's required for us to be able to choose differently, for it to be so visible, the polarities of how we're you know, our systems create these polarities of how we want to live, whether it's very conservative on the one end or so open that everything disintegrates without structure. How could we create uh, a society which contains and makes space for different voices to come together while also allowing us to move forward and, and take actions that are beneficial for all or for as much as possible? If I were to ask you how you might envision a world that you would love to inhabit, what's possible coming out of this fractious time, what might that world look like? What kind of world might you like to see come to fruition? Oh, what a lovely <laughs> question. <laughs> so I'm, integration is the first thing that comes to mind. So there are so many polarised questions, and even within the progressive movement, there are polarised questions around gender and gender identity uh, and, and, and many, many mm. other issues. So an integration, withdrawing of projection, an opening, an understanding and appreciation of multiplicity of approaches, of diversity, even when that's challenging, especially when that's challenging, when people bring an approach, a way of expressing themselves, a way of being in the world that's very different from our own. That really kind of, rather than that instant othering that we can do, you know, kind of urged on by social media often, um, for uh, just a kind of a sitting with and a contemplating and a being open to and a, a discernment. So as part of that integration, I see I suppose what I talked about at the beginning, a move towards that self-regulating whole where uh, I'm thinking of how, you know, a cell in our body operates or how an ecosystem operates when it's at its most healthy is that whatever's needed for the overall health, whatever part needs to step up, if you like, or be drawn on just mm. does so doesn't have to ask questions about whether it'll be paid for it or whether it'll be accepted or, you know, all those questions that can hold us back. But it just moves into doing whatever it needs to do because it knows as a deeply embedded and sold part of the greater whole, it knows what needs to happen. So that might sound a bit abstract, but at a fundamental level, it's a very, very basic thing. You know, if we strip off all the other stuff, um, sometimes we just, you know, we can just know. And if we're operating in a healthy context, we know when it's our part to step up and when it's our part to step back. We know when things are, when there's energy behind certain movements or initiatives or actions. And we know if we're operating healthily and not from ego, when things need to die back and drop back and when people need to step away and let something new emerge or something else happen, whether that's in their own process or within the larger piece. And, and I suppose that we've talked about it a little bit already, but the big piece of that for me um, that, that I'm pay, really paying attention to at the moment that's very alive for me right now is a, an encouragement of a deeper recognition of 
the diversity and appreciation of and gratitude for the diversity of what everybody brings to the piece and for it to be okay for people to prioritize different things um, than we do to act in different ways that we do and uh, moving towards oh, this beautiful future society in which we live utterly in harmony with each other and with the rest of the living world where we respect and honour and have gratitude for all life forms and what they're contributing. Mm, sign me up to that. <laughs> <laughs> so in this world, um, there is no need for money because we're just exchanging. Whenever we have abundance, we're exchanging skills or time or food or resources or whatever the need might be. And I know this, we're so long from, far from this at the moment, but the, you know, when I'm invited to dream, mm. then, uh, then I do. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's no need for money. And so, of course, there will be conflict sometimes. And of course, there will be tensions sometimes, but we have skillful ways of addressing these, not just, not with a kind of a blanket approach of justice or retribution uh, or law, but uh, localized highly adaptive, skillful, compassionate, informed way of addressing with uh, individuals or groups as conflict arises so that they're addressed in the most appropriate ways. Yeah, so it's a thriving, it's a thriving humanity, a flourishing humanity, uh, thoroughly interconnected with and not at all exploiting either each other or all the other species we share this beautiful world with. What a powerful vision of the world that you're holding. <laughs> I love this. And I think the audacity of that vision, it's so exciting. So I think many of us feel, and I certainly fall prey to this, we feel that we have to operate within the limits of what's possible in our generation. And, and that keeps our dreams small and it keeps them from flourishing. And I think having something which is outrageously beautiful like that, that is beyond the scope of perhaps happening on a large scale within our lifetimes. Um, having the capacity to dream big is so important if we are to take the steps to enable that to show up in smaller ways in our lives so that then it can become something which is a, a possible future for more of us. Um, so like planting the seeds now with that vision embedded within it is such a beautiful task to engage in. And also making that that vision possible for others by describing it in the way that you so vividly have. So I, I realise we're coming quite close to time and I wonder if you were going to give people the gift of a book that you might recommend to them, what would that book be and why? Oh, so... Uh, you can pick a few if you prefer. Yeah, I, I, okay, so I'm going to start with Bill Plotkin. I think I mentioned him earlier um, from the Animus Institute in the States and he's written three lovely books. Well, I think he's written four now. I haven't seen the fourth one yet. Um, and of those, well, Soulcraft is a great place to start because it shows how it gives a, a working guide as to how we can reconnect with ourselves as embodied in the world and work in a way that supports our vision and our purpose coming through as mature responsible, compassionate human beings. Um, mm. He also wrote a lovely book called Nature and the Human Soul that is, uh, for me, a much richer and complex kind of version of some of the um, almost like different life stages of psychology, you know, textbooks that you might read. He writes beautifully about what an 
ecocentric, soulful stages of life might look like and transitions from one stage to the next, and what that might look like as well in an unhealthy, egocentric um, society or community. So that's that's a beautiful book. I sat and read that on the floor of a train for six hours once, so uh, totally absorbed, <laughs> despite being next to the toilet. <laughs> and um, really good, book. really good book. And then he's also written Wild Mind, which uh, you mentioned. You touched on Jungian work earlier, so he's developed in a very soulful way and a nature. Um, ecocentric way, Jung's work around personality types. And so he looks at the four directions, north, south, east, and west, and what kind of qualities traditionally reside in each of the four that I think maps on beautifully to uh, Jung's work around personality types and Myers and Briggs's later work on personality types. So uh, all of his stuff. Yeah, okay. I I could probably go on, but (laughs) Bill Plotkin's coming to mind as a good place to start. Wow. I'm going to check him out. That sounds very exciting as a a reading list. And if I were to ask you what you would like your legacy to be, how would you begin to answer that? Oh, uh, um, so I am envisioning that uh, when I take my last breath, I've had a legacy of twofold, partly supporting others in doing really rich and powerful work. The the work I've done just one-to-one with people with their dreams and their visions and their ideas has rippled out and they've gone and done those things and that's been a part of uh, the great turning, if you like, the change that we're, I hope and trust are seeing at the moment as the old system has its death throes, so that I've enabled people to bring their own best work, bring their soul work forward into the world and so that it's really alive and, and vibrant and makes a difference. And the other is something about bridging. So this integration work uh, feels like an area that I'm deepening into and want to move more fully into in this next stage of my work is uh, somehow supporting the bridging between right and left uh, brain hemispheres or very active outer or the more dreaming inner or, you know, the other, the kind of pragmatic voices and the um, romantic voices, if you like, mm. in somehow mediating or facilitating or being a part of that in uh, helping to build that bridge. Mm. I'm looking forward to seeing how that, how that shows up. And so I can read some of it and be inspired. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, then, what question would you like people to dwell with at this moment in time? What is my deepest knowing about what's calling me right now? That's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So it's a question to sit with, to, it's not a question to be answered immediately. Uh, Well, it might be. For some people, it might be. They might just know straight away and have been holding back on it. Um, For others, it might take some walking in nature, some paying attention to dreams, some uh, deep reflection, maybe making some artwork. But just being still, meditating, just being still and allowing that to come through. For some people, it might be taking time out of busy lives to uh, just create space for that to emerge. So that's a question to kind of sit with and roll, you know, as we come into this new year and this new phase, uh, a question to just let roll around and, and just see what begins to come, see what seeds begin to sprout. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. 
To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash the hive podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating or review as it helps to reach new ears. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.